this past season of my life, um, I've had the honor of being a part of a lot of weddings. A lot of weddings. Here at Waypoint Church, we feel like people get engaged literally like every week. As a matter of fact, I feel like I'm a little surprised I haven't heard about a new engagement. Is there, is there a new engagement I need to hear about today? No, I just wanted to make sure. I love weddings. I'll be honest with you. As a matter of fact, our very own uh, worship leader, Nathan Walker, got married two days ago. Give it up for Nathan. So happy that boy got married. There's something so sweet about being a part of a marriage. Something so sweet about being a part of a ceremony when you see two people who are committing and covenanting together come together. When you see two families who are so excited, one family often more excited than the other, specifically Nathan's family. I had to make fun of him. And you would think it would get old, but it really doesn't. And here's one of my favorite parts, is when the groom gets in front. He comes up in front, he walks up there with the pastor. Maybe he has his best man with him, maybe he has a few guys with him. And uh, he gets in front there and he kind of just waits. And then he sees his bride walk in. That's one of my favorite parts. I mean, most people like, look at the bride, but I love looking at the groom. Because typically the groom's face will go through like a, a kind of like a wide range of like weird expressions, but mainly just a lot of like ugly, like crying tears. And I love it. It's one of my favorite parts. As, as a matter of fact, Nathan actually started crying the moment he stood up there. He got up and he actually started crying before he, she even made it in. She, he, was like, he got up there and he started going, Aah! And I love it. I love that part. See the guy cry, enjoy in thankfulness, in full awareness of what honor and privilege she has. I mean, the rest of the wedding is great, but it almost seems like a formality after that. I mean, when you, if you knew this guy was saying yes, look at the, I mean, you knew he was going to say yes, look at the way he is when he just sees her walking down the aisle. It's just a matter of formality. He sees her, and you know he loves her. You know, he sees her, and you know that like, he's like, yeah, this is what I want to do, and I can't believe I get to say yes to this. I mean, just, it's, that's what it seems like. And I love it, because to me, it's one of those beautiful things. I'll admit it. I was one of those guys. I was up in front, and I had tears coming down. And I remember, like, half the crowd couldn't see, because, you know, everybody stands up when the bride walks in, you know? So half the people couldn't see the bride. So, like, all the people are, like, staring at me, like, stop looking at me. I'm going to try to cover my, try to wipe all the tears from my eyes here. And honestly, the rest of the wedding was just kind of like a formality, because you knew what the groom's going to say. I mean, when, he, when he's so moved by that sight, it just is what it is. And I feel like this passage in Nehemiah reminds me of that a little bit. You know? I mean, every time there's a word covenant, I immediately, that's where my mind goes. Every time I think of the word covenant, when I think of promise, I think immediately of the wedding promise. I think immediately of marriages. Maybe it's because of the season, there's so many going on. But I think it's a, an apt comparison often used in the Bible. And for me, this passage makes me think about that. So let's go back to Nehemiah. We've been in this book of Nehemiah for the past three weeks. And we've heard that in the first part of Nehemiah, we were introduced to who Nehemiah was. He was the cupbearer but out of, from Israel when they were under captivity. He was a cupbearer in the Persian court whose heart was moved and overwhelmed with this idea that God's walls of his city, the city that was supposed to be a refuge and a blessing to the nations, was, in, um, was needing repair was destroyed. So he goes and he prays and he goes and he seeks to repair the wall. And as he goes, he faces opposition. So his people are, man, they're praying to God and they're working on the wall. They're laying bricks with one hand and holding a shield with another. 
And they're going after this incredible task of saying, this wall was supposed to mean the, the, the dwelling place and the, the refuge that is the kingdom of God. We can't let it stay like this. We saw last week, we heard that Nehemiah was talking about, it's well and good that we're doing repairs, but are we caring for the poor? Because the kingdom of God is not just a wall, it's about justice. It's about the very rule and reign of our king. Today we're at this point where we've seen Nehemiah, the wall is completed at the end of chapter 6, and chapter 7 gives us the genealogy of those who come back to Jerusalem in the first group with Zerubbabel. I just wanted to say that. He came back with the Zerubbabel, and uh, the wall is complete, and they talk about this genealogy. By the way, next son's name. Zerubbabel. It'd be awesome. If anybody's name is Zerubbabel, please let me know, by the way. It's just really cool. Then in chapter 8, on the first day of the seventh month, which is kind of near the end of September, the people gather, and they ask Ezra the priest, to read to them the law of Moses, which they've neglected all throughout this time. This is the beginning of this worship service that comes to its end 24 days later in chapter 9, verse 38. Ezra reads the law. The people are grieved because of how much of God's will they have failed to do. They celebrate this feast of booths for seven days. That's the last half of chapter 8. And then they consecrate themselves with fasting and worship in the beginning of chapter 9. And then Ezra begins this prayer that was read to you today. His prayer is in response to verse 5 where the Levites say, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be thy glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. And that's what Ezra's prayer does. It blesses the glorious name of God, which is so exalted that no blessing and praise can ever be high enough. And I love how he starts. He starts with creation and recounts the power and grace of God up to his own day against the backdrop of the repeated failures of his people, of Israel to trust and to obey. So we see here in verse 6, You made the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. 7 through 8, You chose Abram from all peoples and made a covenant with him to give him and his descendants the promised land. 9 and 10, you heard the cry of our fathers in Egypt and delivered them with signs and wonders and made a name for yourself that has lasted for centuries to this very day. 12, you guided them with pillars of fire and cloud. 13, you gave them good statutes and commandments. 15, bread from heaven and water was theirs. But in spite of all this, Verse 16 says, the people acted arrogantly. They stiffened their neck. They became stubborn and refused to listen. They actually tried to go back to Egypt, which is just so messed up. But then comes a long list of God's added mercies in spite of disobedience. Verse 17, you are a God of forgiveness, gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He didn't forsake Verses 18 and 19, even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God, and committed great blasphemies, he did not forsake them. And not only did God not forsake them, he pursued them with goodness and mercy again and again. Verse 20, towards the end, he says, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. 
You gave them manna. You gave them water. Their shoes didn't run out. You, you had, they had cities. They had land. They had cisterns. They, they, in verse 25, they reveled. They, they enjoyed your goodness. They delighted themselves in your great goodness. In response to the people in verse 26, they became disobedient. They rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. They killed prophets. They committed blasphemies. Verse 27, God's response. Therefore you delivered them into the hand of their oppressors who oppressed them. But when they cried to you in their time of distress, he heard, and according to his great compassion, he gave them, to deliver, he gave them deliverers or saviors who saved them. Again, verse 29, they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not listen. But then again, you bore with them for many years and admonished by your spirit through your prophets. Verse 30, but they would not give ear. Then the Lord placed them in exile. Then 31, nevertheless, in his great mercies, he did not make an end of them or forsake them because he's a gracious and merciful God. Do you hear this? I don't know about you, but for me, when I read the passages of the Old Testament and I hear stories of the Israelites doing this, doing that, when I hear them making the golden calf after all this, I'm like, how can you be so stupid? I mean, honestly, I'm like, are you serious? I mean, over and over again, you guys keep on doing it, but can I just be honest and real with you guys? How can I be so stupid? I'll be honest with you, as, as, as much as I look at the Israelites and see stiff-necked people, when I look at my own life, and I often forget the goodness and the mercies of God so quickly, too. And I love it because in my own life, it talks about here the Israelites, you did it when, when your land was fertile, when you had all that you needed, your shoes were good, your tracks weren't worn out, you have all the land you want. So even in my own life, when things are going great, I forget God. But it also says when you're in the desert, when things are going struggling, you forgot God. That's me, too. Things are going great, I forget God. Things are going bad, I forget God. Over and over again, I keep on forgetting and realizing, man, I'm making the exact same mistakes Israelites do. And this is the focus, and this is a theme, and this is the heart of Ezra's prayer. God's great goodness in spite of our disobedience. He never forsakes his people. He is gracious and merciful over and over and over and over again. The Israelites messed up and over and over and over again. God forgives, pursues, and finds a way. Even more so, it says he sends saviors with a little s. Ultimately, he sends the savior. Capital S, big S, as large as S can be. His name is Jesus. And the point I want us to see in Ezra's prayer of confession is God's inexhaustible grace. And that is the basis of our true covenant with him. Do you hear that? The point I want us to see in this confession is this God's inexhaustible, immeasurable, unending, never fading, never running out, never running dry grace. And that is our basis. That is the foundation. That is what we can stand on when we say, God, I make a promise to you. Because ultimately we know we're just like these Israelites. We turn and we go away so quickly. And if we didn't have that base to stand on, then our promise means nothing. But it's because of his grace we stand in promise with him. Ezra's petition, he goes further. Ezra asked God for God's help and deliverance now in Jerusalem where they are in distress. Verse 32 begins with now. Now therefore, our God, the great, 
I love this, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. Guys, what kind of God is he? What kind of God? If somebody asks, what kind of God do you serve? What is, tell me about your God. What are the attributes of your God? I just love this. Quickly sum it up just like this. He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. He keeps his covenants, and he's loving and kind. What a great answer to that question, right? He's great. He's mighty. He's awesome. He keeps his promises. He's true to his word, and he has steadfast love. Ezra, verses 34 through 37, expresses the reality of their situation and asks God to move, ultimately leading to this covenant renewal in verse 38. And this is what it says. Verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant. Because of all this, what does that mean? Because of all that was said before, because of God's inexhaustible grace and light of sin, because of God's pursuing, because it is only by grace they can even make this covenant, they make a firm covenant, they make a promise. This is their covenant, this is their solemn vow they make in each other's hearings, this is an oath they make before God. It's a solemn moment in history, and we've seen it on another occasion before, actually, in the time of Hezekiah, if you remember, there was a time of Josiah, which is the name of my son, so I just want to throw that out there. But um, in the time of Josiah, the people of Israel made a covenant. They had discovered they had been neglectful of God's law. They had sinned. And they weren't walking in the way. And they, they became, and they heard the law, and it was time of called Josiah's reforms. Where they heard the law, they were moved to the same point that the people of Nehemiah's time, that's heard the same thing. And they moved in confession of their sin, and they made a confession before the Lord, and they made a covenant renewal. What covenant? What does that covenant mean? What is the promise? And you've heard me say that over and again. What is this covenant? What is this promise? When you go to a wedding, you know what the covenant is. It is, I'm going to be your husband, you're going to be my wife. I'll love you and keep you till death do us part, right? What is this covenant? In Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abraham about his covenant. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. In Joel, it says, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. This is a marriage vow. The people of Nehemiah are confessing and reciting the goodness of God and his faithfulness. They're weeping at seeing the bride. Here's what they're doing. Here's what it is. is They're weeping because they're seeing the bride walk in. And they're seeing how incredibly beautiful this God is. They're saying, oh my goodness, you brought us out of what? You've been through what? You've pursued us through what? Every time I've neglected you, you still came after me. For every step I took away, running away from you, God, you were still pursuing me. You've never forsaken me. You're awesome. You are mighty. You are true to your word. You are steadfast in your loving pursuit of me. And in light of that, they are weeping at the sight of God. And they're pronouncing and saying, yes. The marriage ceremony could be a formality, but I'm saying, yes. You are our God. And we are your people. That is a promise given to Abraham. 
that God will be their God and he will be, they will be his people, that he will be their great reward. And what does that look like for us now? What does that look like for us now as we see in light of confession, in light of covenant, what does it look like for us to confess and then see covenant renewal? What does this look like to be people of the covenant? John Wesley took the example from Nehemiah and every year would hold a watch night service where the congregation would recommit and dedicate themselves to the Lord. This is a prayer John Wesley wrote and he would say this prayer based on Nehemiah and this is what the prayer that he would have the whole congregation say together. I am no longer my own, but thine. Put me to what thou wilt. Wreck me with, those, with whom thou wilt. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for thee and laid aside for thee. Exalted for thee or brought low for thee. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to thy pleasure and disposal. And now, O glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, thou art mine and I am thine, so be it. And the covenant which I have made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. I know it's a little older English language, but that is the covenant we're saying. That is the covenant we're committing to in light of, because of all the goodness in light of, because of he is creator, he has kept his promise, he is steadfast, he is pursuing, he is compassionate, he is loving, he pursues you even when you run away. In light of all that, we commit to this covenant. We say, God, I am no longer my own, but I am yours. Put me to whatever you want me to do. Let me be with whoever you want me to be with. Put me to doing, put me to suffering. God, put me to being full, put me to being empty. Let me have it all, let me have nothing. I freely, with all passion, give all things to your pleasure and disposal. I am not my own anymore. I am yours. And now, God, oh glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you are mine. And I am yours. That is covenant. That is what Abraham promised his people, that he will be their God and they will be his people. And the great reward is not this idea of just heaven in and of itself. The great reward that has promised us is that we get God himself. What we were made for. What we were destined and purposed for. That is our reality. That is this covenant. And may we as a church be reminded individually first to commit to God in covenant. May you be reminded to this day as we look back and say because of all this, because of who you are God, may we commit now to you and say this is our covenant to you. But we also, may we also commit as a body, as a whole body to church. Guys, can I tell you that the Bible knows no such thing as solitary religion. That the, the body of Christ has been and always will has been, the local church body has been this idea of covenantal, congregational, communal worship and relationship with God. We're not meant to do it on our own. We're meant to be together. And this is what happened, Nehemiah, when he had all the people, I love it because in chapter 9, and then he goes right into chapter 10, he goes and lists like every single person who signed this document. Not because individually, look who signed it, but in other words to say, we, all of us, the nation, all of Israel, the people, all of the church body, we commit to this together. This is for all of us as a community, as a body. 
He had all the people sign as a nation. Guys, as a people, I call you, I ask you, I commend you to commit to this covenant. But I also say as a church, may we commit to covenant together. As a church body, as a covenant family, may we commit and covenant together. Promise to together walk in God being our God and our church being his people that he calls to advance his kingdom. Does that make sense? We cannot, we come into living community to spur one another on, to love and encourage one another, to sharpen one another. This is our solemn vow and promise. What does that look like? I had the privilege recently um, of meeting with one of our homebound um, members of our church. Her name is Frances Apple. And I spent some time with her. I got to spend a couple days with her. And as I was spending some time with her, all of a sudden, I was holding her hand, and she got really emotional. And Frances started crying. And I said, Frances, what's the matter? Why are you crying? What can I do? And she said, now that I'm stuck here in this bed, Who's going to take care of the rest of the people who are shut in? I can't take care of them anymore. I'm the one that writes them birthday cards. I'm the one that sends them devotionals. I'm the one who tries to visit them. And I'm stuck here in bed and I can't do that anymore. So she wasn't crying for herself. She wasn't crying for her situation. She was weeping and crying for those who were shut in. And she said, who's going to take care of them? And here I am and I'm just, you know me. I'm, well, most of you guys know me. I'm, I'm often an emotional wreck. I like, I like to cry, I'll admit it. Does not make me less masculine. <laughs> and I started just tearing up. Because I thought, this is a woman who cares for the body. This is somebody who cares for the body, who, who's overcome with desire to, to care for the shut-in. I hate to say, we're often the forgotten because they're not here to be seen. Right? And who cares so much that at her own expense she's willing to weep and cry over reaching them. That is what it means to be a covenant community together. That we care for each other as part of the body. If one part is suffering, we care for that one part. If one part needs, we, we come into covenant together. And guys, not just for the sake of keeping the body healthy. We don't work out so that just the whole body stays healthy so we can be like, ooh, look how good a body we have. We don't care for each other just to be like, hey, look how awesome we are as a church. No, because a fully functioning body of Christ advances the kingdom. Because a fully functioning body of Christ that is covenanting together, who, who says, I love you and I'll spur you on and I'll encourage you, who I'll, I'll lift you up, I'll sharpen you, I'll rebuke you. But together, let me tell you what happens. Together, when we care for the body and we covenant together, let me tell you, we show Christ to the world. And when we do that, when we do that, his kingdom advances. When disciples are being made, this is what we do. When we make disciples, we advance his kingdom. And when we advance his kingdom, that's where justice and mercy flow. That's where the lion lays down to the lamb. That's where the sword gets beaten into a plowshare. May we covenant together as a church family as we confess not only our sin, but the goodness of God in light of our sin. I don't know where you are right now. Maybe you're sitting here and you need to just, for the first time, truly understand what it means 
to first time make a covenant with God through Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you're here and you thought, I've done everything the Israelites have done. I've been the most stiff-necked. I've been the most obstinate. I've been the most running away from God person that you could ever imagine. He would want nothing to do with me. If you read anything, if you heard anything today, hear this. He is pursuing you. He's so full of mercy for you. And the work of Jesus is this, I want you to get this, that he sent little saviors in the past, but now in fullness of time, he sent the big savior, the big S, the, I might start calling Jesus that, the big S, and, and started, he came to you, and the capital S came, and he said this, he said, I'll take upon every punishment, I'll take upon every sin, I'll take upon all upon myself, and I'll give my righteousness in their stead. So instead of me feeling all the guilt that I've done is upon me, now it's upon Jesus, and now what's upon me is this incredible thing, this incredible gift called righteousness that I've made right before God. I don't know if you guys know this, but I remember as a kid, when I would mess up, you know, and I'm like, oh, man, I can't, my, if my parents find out, I'm going to be in so much trouble. You guys ever felt that feeling before? There's that feeling, I hate that feeling, Right? I mean, I hated that feeling, like, of like, oh, no, no, please, mom, don't find out. You know, even as an adult, I still have that kind of in me, you know? I hate that feeling, oh, mom, please don't find out. Oh, dad, please don't find out. But here's what, here's what Jesus does. He takes away that feeling completely and now says, no, no, you, you got the righteous. I always used to joke about my sister was always the better one. You know, she was always the, the better sibling, paid attention, stayed at home, or I was always one to hang out with other people. But, and so, like, I got my sister's righteous. You know, it's like, I, I got, like, her standing now, you know? But even better. It's like having that perfect child, like that, that one child who never made a mistake. I got his standing now with my parents. Do you get that? That feeling of like, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? My parents are going to find out. It's no longer yours. Now instead you have, through the work of Jesus and accepting him as Lord and Savior, you now have his standing. Perfect righteousness. If you don't know that, may you covenant today may you promise today may you join in relationship today may you accept Jesus today and for those of you who know that may you recommit to this life to this prayer that John Wesley prayed say God I am yours you are my God we might have turned away so many times but we're in this together God send me where you will do with me what you will and when we also covenant together as a community, as a church body, to say, I want to do this in this family because I want to see your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. If any of those prayers are yours today, I invite you sometime during this worship set to come and find one of the elders, come and find anybody that wants to pray with you. I'm going to invite Bethany and some others to be here ready to come and find one of us to pray with. You just want to come to the front. People will come and pray with you. But we invite you, if that's you today, you want to profess a covenant and accept it, please come and take advantage of that during this worship set. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that over and over again you show how good and wonderful, how incredible you are, that you are mighty, that you are awesome, that your love endures and is steadfast. God, we thank you for pursuing us. 
We thank you for forgiving us. We thank you for the work of your son, Jesus Christ, the big S, the capital S, the mighty Savior who saves us God, by laying himself down in our place. God, we thank you, and we ask, Lord, that may we covenant now today, individually, we covenant together as a church to follow you, for you to be our God and we to be your people. In Jesus' name, amen.